นโมทัสสะบุคควะตัวอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะตัวอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะตัวอรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามสามFor the last 18 months or so, being there for the ordination was a great inspiration. I think just a couple of weeks ago, I was I was saying how how much happiness I I find from seeing people make a sincere commitment of any kind, really, whatever. If it's a if it's if there's a feeling of of sincerity and preparedness in somebody's making a commitment. For probably quite a number of reasons, some of which I'm maybe not even aware. I, I always find it very inspiring and a, a source of great happiness. So to be at Amravati there with the sangha from um, Chittus there, the monks and nuns came up from Chittus because there was another samanera ordaining Narado. He was he was there from Chittus. All the sangha at Amravati were all there and all in the temple there, with Ajahn Sumato presiding and. The way the thing was set up to to s- enable everybody's participation was was very rewarding and very uplifting. There's so much around that it's very easy to feel pulled down by and, and unhappy about, and uh, whether it's on the global level, the environmental, political, whatever, or personal levels, a lot of individuals struggling in various ways, and and to Have occasions uh, to witness situations where there is harmony, concord, and beauty is is uh, a real delight. Then also coming back up here on the Monday, in time to receive the large gathering of senior monks and nuns who have been staying with us all week, from Chetursk again, from Amravati, from Switzerland. And from California, also Janamro has been staying with us, and this is one of our two meetings that we have in the year. What's called the Elders Council meeting sounds very august and significant. Um, we like to think of ourselves as the cabinet meeting, um, and then the rest of it is the House of Commons. And it is a, a fairly significant meeting because we do talk about matters that pertain to the whole community, and I don't mind telling you that they've not always been. Uh, a great deal of fun. Elders' council meetings uh, have a certain reputation for being serious hard work. There have been times when some senior monks have done anything to get out of going to them, um, which of course is shameless and irresponsible, and um, we all should know better. However, these days uh, things have certainly shifted, and and shifted to the degree that this particular meeting 
was um, a, a complete joy. It was a, a very inspiring gathering. And having Ajahnamaro over from California, he doesn't come that often, and so it was good having him there. But also there's now a larger representation from the nuns community. The, some of the nuns who've been away overseas have come back, and, and there's a strength in the nuns community that wasn't there before, that just comes with years and experience. And, and also some of the junior monks, or they were junior, the people who ordained in this country, and trained in this country, went off to Thailand and come back, and now they're also in positions of leadership in the community, and to have them there participating in this decision-making body. And the whole week, actually, the whole Monday to Friday was, was an inspiration, and, but particularly the meeting on Wednesday. We sat here in the hall together, 12 of us, in a circle from 8.30 in the morning until 6 o'clock at night by the time the meeting finished. That's, that's quite a long meeting. And uh, it really was a pleasure. And uh, several people commented that it was actually uh, the, the best meeting, the best elders' council meeting we've ever had by far. And not only was it a, 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 a successful meeting in terms of the decision that we've made, there was also a certain beauty to it, uh, commented upon by some of the people who were there. And so I've been thinking about, and when they all left, actually that was quite nice <laughs> when they left as well, because uh, having all those extra people staying in the monastery does um, stretch our facilities. It was good to have them here for a week, but also quite okay when they left. But since they've gone, I've been, I've been considering what was, what was it that was so remarkably lovely about that. And just to participate in it and to witness it. And, and yes, there is this element of commitment, which I mentioned before, the sincerity, the people who've been in this thing for a good number of years. But there was something more than that. And I think it was present at both the ordination and at this this meeting. And it's something to do with the willingness of the participants to cooperate. I've always found there's something very lovely in cooperation. I've never been one of these characters who wanted to go off and be on their own. Um, as you've heard me speak about a number of times in my, my younger years, I, I used to live on communes and I always thought the concept of community, although I was never a communist as such, I always thought the concept of community was profoundly important and, and then when I found out that the third refuge for Buddhist Sangha meant community my ears picked up, I thought there's something something in that the uh, acknowledgement of, of the need that human beings have to help each other, to support each other and I do believe it's a need. I don't think it's just a preference on the part of some people. I think really it's a need that we have to cooperate, to support each other. We can't stand alone. Yes, the Buddha did say such things as be an island unto yourself and be your own refuge. And, and inwardly and ultimately, yes, we are alone. But in the process of coming to wholehearted contentment with our aloneness, and a freedom in our actual aloneness, we need each other. And so the Buddha also said that spiritual companionship or true companionship is uh, essential. Kalyanamitta, literally beautiful friendship, is essential. So seeing this and contemplating it, uh, I found very rewarding. And and looking at what is it that, what is it that, that brings it about? How do we 
how how come this group of of twelve strong individuals? I mean, none of the twelve people who sit in that circle is a pushover. I can tell you that they're, they're all you don't mess with any of them. There's, everybody's got some strong views and opinions, and and probably I think it's true that also for everybody in that circle, maybe one or two of the newcomers are the exception, but for everybody else in that circle, probably all of us at some extent have had a pretty serious run-in with, with others in the community in that circle over the years. You know, 30 years for some of us have been together. It's a long time to be together. And how is it that we stick together? Not only stick together, but actually we there's a, there's a, a not just a, a happiness, but there's a a certain profound sense, I would say, of cooperation there. And that's precious. Like the, the decisions that we arrived at, the, the questions that were raised, and some of these questions um, are not easy to answer. And maybe there's one of the questions is some one of the communities has started, the, the rule that we recite every, every fortnight, the Patimoka rule, has been recited in Pali for 2,500 and something years. Well, one of the monotheist communities suddenly started translating it into their own native language and, and chanting it in their own native language without consulting anybody else in the community. Well, that raised a few non-existent eyebrows, <laughs> and a few questions were asked. I mean, this is you know this is a 2,500 lineage you're, you're messing with. I mean, how, how can you just suddenly translate it into your own language? And how do you know it's a valid translation anyway? And, and is it legal? Is it legal? I mean, it's law, there's community law, that's what the veneer is about. Is it a legal thing to do? Nobody knew, actually. We would look into it. And, and such questions can raise passion, can raise feelings of, of uh, yeah, opinions, and people have got attachments. And whilst we're all, uh, all committed to freedom from attachment and, and freedom from getting lost in views and opinions, the reality is we still have to deal with our being attached to our views and opinions. There was nobody in the circle that was enlightened, as far as I know. So we do all have views and opinions, but, but what is it that means that we all have these passionate views and opinions, and yet we can cooperate? What is it about that? Because that's, I find, that's what's beautiful. You know, there's also the question about the nuns community. Which nuns can participate in this meeting? Now this is a as I say, a meeting that's got a certain little gravitas to it. These are the decision. This is a decision-making body, and and for many, many years we never had nuns visit, never participate in this meeting. Well, now there are nuns participating in this meeting, and the nuns are still trying to find their own place in the community, in relationship to each other, and in relationship to us, and also in relationship to the bhikkhu tradition. And there's a lot of passion, a lot of energy, a lot of views and opinions in that. So what is it that means that we can spend all that time together, meet together, be together, part together in harmony and concord, and want to stay together? Actually, some of the people were talking about changing their travel plans so they could stay on longer. They wished that they hadn't, you know, weren't going back so soon. And after the meeting, we didn't all just run off to our rooms and say, thank goodness, that's all over, and start chattering about that so-and-so. He doesn't know whether he's coming or going. He hasn't got a clue. That guy there, that senior monk is he's useless, or that senior nun, she should, shouldn't come next time, or whatever. No, not at all. Rather, people sat around drinking tea with each other and for quite a long while afterwards. So what is it that makes that possible? What is it that generates that kind of quality of cooperation? 
where a consensus, a real consensus decision can be arrived at. Because consensus doesn't come easy. Consensus requires that that everybody feels heard. Of course, as we all know, there's a big difference between a unanimous decision and a consensus decision. There's no way we would have unanimity on, on a lot of the things we talk about. A unanimous decision means we all absolutely agree on the same thing. We have the same view on something. We all say, yes, this is the view. Where a consensus decision is different. A consensus means that everybody feels heard, everybody expresses their view, their take on it, and then out of that consensus emerges a group decision. Now that group decision may not necessarily be the decision of every individual, but every individual agrees to go along with that decision. And they can only feel that they can agree to go along with that decision if they feel that they've been heard. And for that to happen takes a lot of time. In the early days when we would meet, some of these meetings were just so tedious and there'd be some really hot tempers flying. You know, some of these wonderful, inspiring monks and nuns that you all go to sit on retreat with, I can tell you, when we're in elders' council meetings together, we're not always so, so uh, wonderful and inspiring. In fact, sometimes quite the opposite. In the past, there were some, yeah, some pretty heated moments in some of the meetings we've had in the past. But we're still together, and we can arrive at consensus decisions. And there is more than just we can arrive at decisions. There's a, there's a, a wonderful sense of appropriateness to those, that way of working and the decisions we arrive at, and the beauty in it. So I think the what, I, what I've been pondering on is I think the primary characteristic, the primary quality that makes this possible is the practice that leads to a willingness to let go of my way. There is no way that such a bunch of individuals who are and all in, in and of themselves each of them capable leaders, they're all leaders of communities. Such leaders would not be able to be together in a room and deal with such complex, gritty questions in a competent way, let alone enjoy themselves in the process, if there was a commitment to getting our own way. If our real commitment was to getting my way, no way, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible. And so I've been thinking about that, and also it corresponds with uh, with this month being the month of Waisak. Uh, at the beginning of the month, there was already a, uh, a full moon, and there's going to be another full moon. Well, towards the end of this month, actually, it's the beginning of next month, technically, and we're celebrating Waisak on the thirtieth this month. But this is the month of Waisak, and a time when the millions of Buddhists there are around the world are reflecting on the example of the Buddha, our teacher. And it was his sacrifice that meant that he was able to arrive at the realization that was the basis of all this teaching. It wasn't that he had an easy time. All of us are familiar with the life story of the Buddha and and how he had come from such a luxurious background where he had everything and he gave everything up. Everything he gave up. And eventually he lost even his close friends, his the five bhikkhu companions he had and who were accompanying him in his search for enlightenment, even those gave up on him. And he was left completely alone, lost everything, lost his family, lost his reputation, 
lost his health, lost his friends. But there was a willingness, there was a willingness to give these things up because he was interested in the possibility, he was interested in the inquiry, he was interested in the question, is it possible to be free? Is this experience of being a human being just a kind of a bad joke? Is it an obligation to be miserable? Is it a raw deal? Is it inherently just bad news? Or is there a possibility that having been born, obliged to get old, get sick and die, is it possible to go through this process and not suffer? Or are we obliged to suffer? This is the question the Buddha asks. This is a question that arose in his mind and for this reason he was willing to make the great sacrifice, the great renunciation that was symbolized by his leaving the palace and shaving his head and going off on his pursuit around the age of 29. Because he was willing to make this great sacrifice, that he was able to generate the energy, cut through the delusions, the veils of ignorance that were obscuring the truth, and arrive at enlightenment. So the sacrifice is a big part of the Buddhist message. Now sometimes the word sacrifice we shy away from because we've also been taught the sacrifice of uh, the crucifixion, that was a, which I don't know about you, but I was taught this in a way whereby I was made to feel guilty because somebody died for me. That's such a burden to have to live with that I shied away from using the word sacrifice and the concept of sacrifice. But thankfully after a few years that doesn't carry the same meaning as it used to. And now when I contemplate sacrifice, actually it's a beautiful concept. Because there is no possibility of growth, there is no possibility of transformation if we're still holding on to me. Me, the limited sense of me, with my addiction to preferences and my habits and my opinions and so on. If I'm really committed to this, if I'm not willing to sacrifice this, then there is no possibility for transformation. The only possibility for transformation is if there is this willingness to let go of me and my way. And that is a sacrifice. But I find it these days now an inspiring sacrifice. I've been very fortunate in my life as a monk and since the age of of um, about 36, when I had eight years as a monk, no, it was less than eight, less than that. Anyway, I'd been a monk for eight years. I, uh, I was already left in charge of running monasteries, and and so since then, now um, having been a monk for 30 years or 29 years, and still in charge of running monasteries. The privilege of that position is enormous. It's like some of you, those of you that are parents, you'll be very aware of the ordeal the, uh, that comes with the obligation of being responsible for other people, for taking care, for looking after, for the thankless task of, of always preparing food and looking after the, the heating and the children leave the windows open and you're working all day long to get the money to pay the gas bill and you come home from work and then you... You bust yourself cooking a meal and then they don't eat it and they just complain about how awful the food is and and then you're concerned about their not getting caught up in the wrong company and all they're doing is complaining and calling you awful names. And But also I've heard from parents what a wonderful, what a privilege it is to look after them, to nurture another living being and to see them grow into something that that is beautiful and, and has a respect for, for life and has true values. And, that to be part of such a development is a wonderful privilege. So certainly as the abbot of a monastery uh, or various monasteries over these years 
it's also been a huge privilege to be in a position where you're receiving other people's expectations. Yes, it's a grind sometimes, and there are times when you just think, I do anything to not be in this position. It's just how do I get out of here? And, uh, and the rest of them can all get lost. There certainly are times like that. But those are very passing, brief moments. The more consistent moment, the more consistent feeling, the more consistent impression, is that actually to be in a position to support others is a real privilege. But it does require sacrifice. If I'm, if I'm doing what I want to do, there's no way that I can be doing the job as, of leading a community. No way whatsoever. So being in the position where you're expected to actually give up my way is a privilege. It's fortunate. And I look back and over all these years and, and think this is, you know, I don't know how I would have done the practice that I've done if it wasn't for that expectation. It's difficult, but it's necessary. Sacrifice is necessary. And if we can find ways of supporting ourselves and supporting each other. Well, this contemplation of sacrifice is one way of supporting ourselves. You know, to actually look and see, well, there's no way that this feeling, this limited feeling of me, with my attachments and my limitations, there's no way that I can be free from this. There's no way this can be transformed without losing something. So there's got to be a loss. There's got to be a loss. There's got to be a giving up of something. So when we go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, we bow down and say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Sangha. What we're saying is, I, me, with all my attachments and, and my limitations, I lay myself down, I bow in front of that, which is free. We understand that the Buddha did realize freedom. The Buddha, as a human being, actually realized the, the full potential that human beings have of perfect wisdom, perfect compassion, unshakable clarity, unshakable understanding. And because we have faith and confidence that that's possible, when we go for refuge and bow down in front of that which symbolizes the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, that within us which is committed to realization is strengthened. And correspondingly, that which is in us which is committed to the world is weakened. That within me which is committed to the world and wants to be upright and puff my chest out and say, I don't need you, I can do it on my own. Notice me, look at me, great, all my wonderful opinions and views. Me in my way, my rights. Yeah. I'm always right, whatever. Listen to me. That character actually is very rigid. That's the worldly character. And on some level we all know that he or she is, is inherently limited. And all he or she has got ahead of him is death. But that which is willing and able to bow down out of respect and gratitude to that which is perfect, perfect wisdom, perfect compassion, that within us is something that we can respect and we can cultivate. So I feel that uh, the meetings that we've had over the last uh, week or two and the beauty that uh, that was there, the, the real subtle but genuine sense of joy of being together with with enthusiastic, opinionated, strong-headed people but in a cooperative and lovely way. I feel that comes out of this shared commitment that we have to giving up my way. The shared commitment we have to the refuges. 
and uh, witnessing that I do find a real encouragement and an inspiration that, that it is possible that all the ugliness of the world the sadness of the world all the effort and the energy that goes into trying to solve problems but a lot of it's not really based on on truths if it's, it's based on preference it's based on opinion my way I think you know whether it's the my way as an individual or my way as a as as a, a, an, an Englishman or a Scot or, a, or an American or an Irishman or a Kiwi or my way as a male or my way as a 52-year-old male or my way as a husband or my way as a wife or my way as a supporter of Labour or Liberal Democrats or Conservative or the Democrats or Republicans or or the Muslims, or the Jews, or anything else. When we're finding our identity, we're finding our strength, and we're finding a sense of me in these limited identities, then there is no way, actually, there can be harmony and concord, because we're going to clash up against people who don't share that commitment. Yeah. And so that's the, actually, that's the cause of conflict. Me and my way is the cause of conflict and suffering in the world. So the solution to suffering and conflict personally within ourselves and in the communities and families we live in and in societies and globally, the solution to the conflict is finding a way to encourage ourselves to be more willing to give this up. And so that's the question if we want to embrace the Buddhist path of practice and to bring it into our daily life is to ask the question, how can I find ways that increase my willingness to give up my way? Now I know that runs against the world which is very much as how can I get my way more often? How can I get my rights? How can I get what I deserve? I deserve this and I work so hard and I've got my rights and, and such things. That's what the world is all about. Well the Dhamma runs completely contrary to that. And it says how can we encourage ourselves to let go of me and my way? Sometimes talking like this people think oh well then you just become weak. You just become a, a kind of a weak, flabby nobody who doesn't know how to stand up straight or can't express themselves. Well, that's not at all my experience. I, I've seen just this week. I mean, these uh, these people that I w- were sitting in this meeting with, none of them were weak. That's for sure. They're very strong, very able people. Or, or the Dalai Lama, who's uh, certainly not a weak person. Anybody who's been through what he's been through. I, I'm not sure whether, whether you heard about his, his meeting recently in, in, in Toronto. Ajahn V, Ajahn Viridhamma, some of you know, wrote me an email and was, he was in Toronto with the Dalai Lama there. 26,000 people at the Sky Dome came to listen to a talk on compassion. 26,000 people. And the Dalai Lama was sitting there smiling, cackling away. <laughs> 26,000 people. Now, you can't be a wimp and uh, be through what he's been through and address 26,000 people. It actually takes guts to give up my way. It doesn't take guts to follow my way, to get what I want. It's easy, actually. You say, I want this. I want. That's what children do. That's what little children do. I want this. This is mine. This is me. This is mine. And as I, was, I was up in Edinburgh recently with with Kim, some of you remember Sopano, Kim has now got a little boy called Jude and he's going through that phase, and this is mine. I wasn't going to take it away from him, he's saying, that's mine, 
And, well, of course, for children, that's understandable. And you know that children have got to go through the stage of saying, this is mine, and this is my rights. And, and like I was saying in the, the talk a couple of weeks ago, the little girl on the, on, the, on the train in New York refusing to go along with the mother's request to say, sit on my knee. She says, I want to discuss it first. And this is my right to discuss it. And, well, that's the stage that children go through, you know, me and mine. But we're not supposed to get stuck in that stage. If we don't have proper training and support, uh, then we can remain stuck in that stage. Not because we want to, but we can't, because we can't find a way out of it. Well, that's what all the spiritual traditions, all the spiritual traditions, all the valid ones, are all about. How to find ways to get ourselves out of, get us unstuck from a commitment to me and what my way. So for Buddhists, reflecting on the example of the Buddha, the great sacrifice that he made, Despite all the comfort and the convenience that he had, he made this great gesture of renunciation to go forth in pursuit of his realization. After his realization, not only did, could he also have all the comforts that he had before, he could have had more. He's now a fully enlightened being. But no, for the rest of his life, he lived the example of a simple renunciate monk, going without anything but the absolute bare necessities. So as an inspiration, as an encouragement for followers to do likewise, to reflect on the power, the force of renunciation, of the willingness to give up, the willingness to let go. Yeah. Because of the validity of the Buddha's teachings, fortunately the monastic Sangha has stayed around for two and a half thousand years. Monks and nuns are still around now, hopefully setting the example of a willingness to give up me and my way. Now, in any case, you look into any individual, certainly this particular community, I'm sure you'll find plenty of example of, of a lack of willingness, but also, hopefully, there is also a commitment to the willingness to cultivate the willingness to let go of me and my way. But this is not just something that, that monks and nuns do. This is something that all of us need to do. When we feel the pain of constriction and just the agony of wanting, just, I want, I want, whatever it is, no matter how amazingly justified and altruistic it is, if we're attached to it, it hurts. It's really painful. Now, if we feel that, well, then the wise thing to do is to reflect on the Buddha's example of his renunciation and to take that on board and to encourage ourselves to be willing to let go. No matter how convincing our desires appear to be, there is no end to them. They just go round and round and round in circles. I want this, I want that. If it's not wanting material, sensual gratification, it's, it's, it's grasping hold of, of views and opinions and, and wanting to be acknowledged and wanting to be seen and respected and, and even wanting subtle things like wanting realization. If we're caught up and lost in our wanting, it's painful. And the only way from the Buddhist perspective, which I personally am completely committed to, the only way beyond that addiction to gratification of desires is the cultivation of this willingness to let go. So again, when, when we feel we're confronted with the pain of our commitment to me and my way, if we can just remember the Buddha image, remember the Buddha's example, remember our practice, and at least inwardly, maybe if you're on a bus or you're at work or something, you don't want to actually physically bow, but uh, at least inwardly you can make a, a bow and you say, I bow down to the Buddha, I bow down to the Dhamma, I willingly give up my way in pursuit of the way, the way of truth. 
Thank you very much this evening for your attention.